Tonight, Almighty One, our sacrifice begins. We commence. Spellbird, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. This week on Spellburn, we're waiting for Gen Con. DCC RPG is going to have its biggest presence ever at the world's biggest gaming convention. How did we get here? Taco John Hirschberger has been involved in old-school gaming for decades and running the same campaign for much of that time. But you may know him as a friendly face behind the Dealer's Room booth, the writer-editor of the DCC RPG Index, or one of the people who is making the Gong Farmer's Almanac happen for the third year in a row. We'll talk to John about Gen Con, the Almanac, the Indices, and much more. I'm Judge Julian, and with me are Judge Jen. Hey, guys! And Judge Jeff. Well, hello there. And even Judge John. Hey, Judge John, I've got the right letter. Another chance. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. That might be a semi-permanent status. But without any further ado, I also want to make a special shout-out to James West, who did an excellent custom-drawn Spellburn banner for episode 55. Um, some of you have may noticed we put a lot of secret names in the, the big tomes around our harried Judge Jen picture. <laughs> In uh, <laughs> D- well, you know, Jen, you know it was you. I was flattered. There's secret messages in the spines of those books. So anyway, study it and love it and enjoy it. And thank you to James. It was really great. And we hope to get some in the future, maybe for this episode or for future episodes. So um, go to our site and check it out and see. And thank James for his great work. And check out his uh, excellent black pudding zine. And I think with that, we can head on over to Tavern Talk. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give her a drink of your most expensive. Tavern Talk. All right. Uh, we're over in Tavern Talk where we will discuss what we have done in gaming over the past week or two weeks. And I'm going to slide it on over to Judge Jeff to kick it off. Okay. So I've actually had a pretty busy two weeks in gaming. The Sunday before last, I ran Mutant Crawl Classics for the DCC NYC meetup group. I ran Assault on the Sky High Tower, and it was my first time running MCC since the very first meetup that I did for our meetup group when I ran Museum at the End of Time. And a very different experience because the first time around, I did not have a PDF of the core book and um, was just kind of winging a lot of the stuff this time around. I actually had some materials to work with, so that was pretty exciting. It was a really awesome, super fun adventure. Highly, highly lethal. Of the 28 zero levels that came through, uh, only four, I believe, survived. And even that required a little bit of fudging on my behalf, much to the chagrin of Jarrett Crater. Um, (laughs) um, I also uh, am playing in Andy Action's uh, BX Strange Ones campaign. We're doing Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, and that's been a blast. I'm playing my my Vivimancer, which is a really fun class written by Gavin Norman, and uh, it's kind of a Turjan of Mirror kind of character. And uh, then the very next day on Saturday, I went up to Connecticut 
to play in Joey Royale's Drinking and Dragons game. Uh, super, super fun. He ran kind of this uh, homebrew DCC adventure that he had written that was loosely based on Children of the Corn. And while I was up there... <laughs> And Sorry. while I was up there, no, no, it's, it was really, really super fun. And while I was up there, he gave me a tour of his friendly local gaming stores. And one of them, I'm forgetting the name of it, but maybe that's okay based on how I'm about to describe it. One of them, like, it really just like felt like I was walking to a porn shop. Like it was kind of like this, this gaming store kind of like behind this building and kind of, like you had to kind of like go around the building and into... Uh, the back of it and it's kind of like in this basement but it was really cool like they had like all these like old issues of dragon magazine like bound together in these big in these big stacks uh, and he took me to this bookstore that uh, called book barn and book barn had three rooms of fantasy paperbacks all for one dollar and I managed to walk out of there with like 18 Appendix N books for 18 bucks it was really cool including wow. a yeah. gorgeous copy of dwellers in the mirage and uh, some other A. Merritt and Andre Norton stories. And then the very next day, three days in a row, I got to play in Well of the Worm, uh, which was run by my buddy, Judge Andrew Sternick. So very full two weeks, had a lot of fun. Who's next? Jeez. I just want to say Sternick is a great name. If you think about what it rhymes with, you'll get there with me. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, Terrific, Andrew. Okay, Jen, Judge Jen, you're up. Uh, been super busy, but we have been able to squeeze in a pair of playtests for DCC Lankmar as a player, not a judge, thankfully. And I was not so forcefully reminded via text message when Bob listened to the last show. No, we we did that other module long, long ago. We're actually an expedition to the Barrier Peaks. And I realized why I'd been blocking the name of it from my memory, and that's because radiation poisoning really sucks. So, <laughs> on a happier note, we're going into Metamorphosis Alpha starting tomorrow night, which makes me so, so very happy. I don't know why. It's easier to play sci-fi when it's meant to be sci-fi, I think. I'm not such a big fan of it when it's just kind of invading your fantasy playground, Aww. you know? Aww. I know. Hey, I've long been a fan of fantasy or sci-fi, not usually both, so getting to go straight into MA will be a nice little change, I think. You got your chocolate in my peanut butter. Tisk tisk. So I get my Lankmar, and I get my MA, and I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Judge John, I'm going to swing it on over to you and put you on the spot. Tell us about your last week or two or three in gaming. Yeah, so this will be an interesting twist. So I haven't gamed in the last week or so, but the most recent session was about three weeks ago. And so we've we've restarted in the Wilderlands in our traditional gaming campaign. The party is now about third or fourth level. And they have been, uh, they've spent about a session and a half making their way down through the Argarten underworld. So Ooh, we're actually yeah. using Harley's Journey to the Center of the Earth Ooh. in my AD&D campaign. Ooh. And it's a little overpowered. It's a level five adventure, I think, or four for DCC, which makes it about eight or nine for, for old man D&D. Hmm. But we're giving it a try. I don't know how long we're going to go down this path, but... 
anyway, we're giving that a go. And then uh, really the last week or two has been a lot of things related to Gen Con and then the DCC Lankmark Kickstarter. So I'm, I'm doing some support work behind the scenes on uh, Kickstarters for Goodman Games. Hmm. Yay! So John, how, how do you find it and how do you approach the conversion of, the, uh, of Harley's journey to the AD&D stuff? Do you kind of do it on the fly or do you have some a little... I know you, you're kind of you know, pretty organized, so do you do some rough prep ahead of time or do you get meticulous with it or what do you do? It's, it's more rough and as time has gone on, it's gotten looser. Um, there was a time when I had a little more time on my hands and the conversions were much more uh, written down. Um, but I can take a stat block now and pretty much convert it mentally without even really doing any math. It just, I look at it and, and run with what comes up. And that goes back to some of my history, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I, I did um, a lot of third edition stuff conversions and used them in my AD&D game. So it's hmm. really the, the third edition stat blocks are much more involved and there's a lot more information than there is in the typical DCC stat block. So to convert from DCC to something else versus third edition to something else, the DCC conversion is there's not that much conversion going on. Well, AD&D is a light stat block too, right? So Yeah, about two lines. I mean, the, the two relevant, I mean, there's six or seven specific stats that matter. And everything else we work out at the table. Man, put me on a desert island with AD and D and DCC, and I'm I'm good. I mean, that's I'm pretty much there. I really fondly remember our Caverns of Thracia game, John, where uh, I think it was a Gary Con, where I sat next to Jeff on one side and mm-hmm. a, a flask of whiskey on the other side, and there may have been some <laughs> other guys at the table. And uh, but that was a frickin' wonderful game. We had a, that was a blast. Thank you. That was a fun game. And so I'm going to now spew my gaming week for the last two weeks. I had a uh, an excellent rogue trader uh, session with John Carnes, Judge John, I should say, Jolly John, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of planning and scheming capped off by shooting a 40-meter-wide beam of coherent energy down at an aircraft carrier, um, so that was great. We enjoyed that. And then uh, following Dave, Crips and Things with my friend Mark Wood, Grognard par excellence. Uh, we're doing Barrow Maze uh, with CNT, and that has been a blast as well. And uh, I'm working on a few different little things, as well as uh, my little Ravenloft uh, white box gothic project in the background here, which I'm running this weekend. So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, with that, I think it's time to head on over to Summon Email. I call upon the flame to summon you. Who'll deliver the message for me? I came here to give you these facts. Summon email. All right, and Judge Jeff, would you like to take our first email for the episode? I'd be happy to. This message here is from Don Stroud, and he says, Hosts, I was far too lazy to actually go looking or listening for an answer, so maybe you kids can help. If this has been covered already, hashtag sorry, not sorry. (laughs) In the lay on hands section, there are options for healing more than just hit points for things like disease, poison, paralysis, etc. There are also spells from level one to three that do most of that uh, for most of these afflictions. Why oversight or planned? Is there a good reason or just too many cooks in the kitchen? Opinions? Am I missing some obvious thing? Does it really matter? Am I picking nits? 
Thanks for your vast reserves of knowledge and for keeping the laws of man and woman, of course. Don, the lazy but possibly too contemptuous but mostly just curious Stroud. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, Great right. question. <laughs> okay, Don. Um, or a beautifully it, phrased question, especially. I, yes. You know, I, and I'm going to hop in here and say, no, you're not picking nits, but I will to the point of thank you for being another one of our lovely DCC fans who looks at a spell name and says, oh, well, that's what this does. The spells... Cure Paralysis, Neutralize Poison or Disease, and Restore Vitality all offer the options at higher spell results, of course, to do this for more than one PC at a time. So I I looked at those spells and went, you know, that's a really good question at first, but no. And quite honestly, it's on me too. I was thinking the same thing. That makes sense. And then is there, you know, thank you, Jen, Judge Jen, and kudos to you for doing the research because I meant to and I forgot. But is there like a top maximum result on like neutralized poison that's like bring an anti-poison beam down from the stars <laughs> that breaks the Earth's crust and neutralizes all poison in the galaxy forever? Do they have that sort of stuff? For cure paralysis <laughs> and restore vitality, it's the cleric casting a spell. And restore vitality specifically is for things like broken bones, severed limbs, and restores your ability score drain, which is one of those spells that if the judge lets you, you can go back and forth with that uh, wizard who keeps spell burning, if, if your judge lets you. So the cleric can restore ability score drain, etc., but it's all the cleric casting this and... Uh, for instance, at result 30 to 31 under Restore Vitality, the cleric can designate up to four targets within 30-foot range mm. and have this big, huge, you know, whether caused by spellburn, monster attack, broken limbs, or other means, here's ability score restoration, you know, if this is associated with an injury, the injury is also healed. Cure Paralysis, pretty much the same thing. The cleric casts and all creatures within X number of feet are cured of paralysis as well as any other condition that may limit your motion. Neutralize poison or disease, as I was looking through it, it's different in that the cleric leads a prayer and other creatures can participate in that prayer with the cleric, essentially Hmm. chaining hands together, forming a circle, and those that pray with the cleric are cured of all poisons or diseases, or in some cases, you know, a certain number of poisons or diseases affecting them. It's a different style, which I I think is kind of cool. It it adds a little bit more of a ritual aspect to it, as opposed to just hamana hamana, poof, you're cured. Yeah. So that that was my take. Make that weird guy actually participate in the group prayer with the cleric to actually get the benefit too, right? I mean, that's that could be pretty cool. Right, and the cleric can essentially do that for the whole party or the party and other people involved. At that same level, 30 to 31, 12 other creatures can participate in this. And Hmm. all of them, as long as they have a circle that the cleric is part of, everyone that prays with the cleric is completely cured of poisons or diseases, and they're removed from their systems, and any effects are reversed. 
you know, over the course of the next 24 hours, etc. Well, I think it, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like that's really good design. Like, we're giving you a spell that makes you a healing rock star, but we're also giving you the capability to get through this adventure and do the thing mm-hmm. you need to do to get the one guy up on his feet and going, right? Right. And just for the just for the, the benefit of nitpickers around there, uh, casting time on cure paralysis and neutralize poison or disease is one round. So that's not bad. That's one action. Everybody has to stop and do this. Hmm. Restore vitality takes a turn. Interesting. And I, I have another thing that I think I can add to this conversation as well, which is, so Cure Paralysis is a second level spell, and you need to get a 14 to cast the base level of Cure Paralysis. And if you are a first level cleric and you are casting Lay on Hands, if the person is the same alignment as you, you also only need to roll a 14 to remove their paralysis. So a first level cleric who is healing somebody of the same alignment is able to do something far more powerful than they should normally be able to do because this is a second level spell. But if a first level cleric is trying to heal somebody of an opposed alignment, they need to roll a 22 to make that thing happen. So Mm. also I think it kind of, whether that's designed that way or not, I think it also intentionally or unintentionally is also quite brilliant because it plays into this idea that lay on hands is really supposed to be used for characters of the same alignment when possible. And it it makes it possible for a low-level character to help somebody who's of the same alignment in a way they might not be able to do normally. Right. That that was... Yeah, that's a really nice catch, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks. And and all three of those spells are level two. So you have to be third level just to be able to cast them. So, yeah, you're, you're level one, level two clerics even. Yeah, that's... Yep. So 60% chance you die before you get a chance to cast those spells anyway. If you make it past the funnel, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, Judge Don. Appreciate the. That's a great email and great question. Thank you for that. Uh, and for our next email, we will slide it on over to Judge Jen. Our next one comes from DM Kojo. Greetings, Burners of Spells. I enjoyed your email episode and especially liked the conversation about how you give out XP. I like the idea of an episode devoted to XP, or maybe a more broad topic of how you reward players. XP, luck points, treasure, etc. In terms of XP, I pretty much go by the book. Based on how deadly the encounter is, I award the XP at the end of the encounter. I also let players level up in-game if they hit the next threshold, if the player is capable of doing it on their own, while the game continues. For newer players, I help them at the end of the session or beginning of the next. I also award luck for good role-playing or use of a character's attributes and abilities. So if a character performs a very cool mighty deed or uses a thief skill to good effect, I give them luck or sometimes XP on the spot. I would love to hear more about this topic, especially how you manage luck as judges. Thanks, DM Kojo. The thing that I really love about this email in particular is it also ties into a question I'm having right now about how to use fleeting luck in my campaigns. And I know he doesn't specifically ask about fleeting luck here, but I want to I want to add that to this conversation and see what you guys think. Because in my games, when people when people do something really badass or funny in character and everybody laughs, or if their character does something that's just really like awesome or heroic or whatever, I award them luck points. I say, oh, perfect, plus one luck. But one thing that I've noticed is when I'm running games that have fleeting luck, 
instead of doing that, I'm handing out fleeting luck and I'm being far more generous with it. I'm handing out fleeting luck left and right. But I notice that I, I, I'm not handing out those permanent luck bonuses anymore because I'm constantly handing out fleeting luck. So I'm curious for those of you who have more experience with this, <clears throat> Jen, uh, <laughs> if, if you have found by playing games where you're passing out fleeting luck, you have stopped giving out permanent luck. Um, what's your experience been with that? Um, actually, I'm, I'm going to defer to Taco for just a moment. Judge John, um, I know you don't judge DCC all that often, but the concept of extra XP, do you award that to your players if they've role-played like above and beyond? Like the paladin saying, oh, uh, I know I might die in this, but I'm not leaving my cohort in there and running in to go get them? There are a few instances where that does generate some what I call bonus XP, and that's over and above the prescribed XP for combat treasure and and combat with monsters with extra abilities, extra special abilities. Um, but it's it's very um, subjective. Um, but I do well, things. Yeah. <laughs> I do things like um, I don't do it as much as I used to. I had a, a pretty elaborate system of of uh, subjective XP that I used to do. So, Somehow this doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so spellcasters got XP <laughs> for spells cast. Um, oh, wow. Just in the course of play. And we don't do a ton of in-character role play. We do some, but it's we don't do a ton of role play within the, within the setting of the game. So, um, and we kind of expect the paladin to be the hero. Um, <laughs> so it's got to yeah. be above the base expectations. So, okay, that's um, fair. Yeah. So to get to Jeff's question then, um, I actually had the problem before fleeting luck was a thing. I would give out XP for those grandiose moments. And mm. and next thing I know, the thief has 19 or 20 or 21 permanent luck. Mm, yeah. And so no matter what he does, he's going to end up getting that back the next day or at least a portion of, you know, based on his level. And all of a sudden, I've got warriors and dwarves with 18 luck, just because they're really good role players. Mm -hmm. I w what I would add to that with my, with my thieves and my halflings, one of the house rules I have is when I award luck, if you're anybody other than a thief or a halfling, then yes, you just add a luck to your permanent, to your permanent luck score. And... And I feel like I run a pretty ruthless game, so I feel like a lot of the times my people are spending a lot of their luck to survive even. But with my halflings and my, my thieves, they're getting this stuff back. So what I do when I award them luck is I make them roll the d20. And if what they roll is higher than their permanent luck score, they can increase their permanent luck score. If it's lower than that, then they just add it to their, to their current luck score. Oh, that's actually a really good idea. Um, hmm. Now that... Now that fleeting luck is out on the table, so to speak, yes, I give it out very frequently because depending on the style of it, the way that you play, I think the official version doesn't include the fact that if the judge rolls a one, everybody gets a point of luck. Or if the judge rolls a nat 20, all the luck comes back in. It does specifically say that if anybody at the table rolls a nat one, as in a crit fail, all of the luck comes back in. So the luck really does come and go in a 
pretty steady flow. And the idea is if anybody has that fleeting luck left at the end of a session, then it can become permanent luck. Or, you know, oh. go toward go toward replenishing what people have already spent off their sheets. Oh, that's interesting. I think it kind of goes back to what Doug would say, which is always Doug will say, well, nobody gives out enough luck anyway. Yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not and I don't think I totally hijacked Kojo's question here because I feel like we're also answering his question. But is, is there anything else that. He's asking here that I, I accidentally have taken us on a totally different tangent, so we're not asking. Oh, no, no. It, it, if character performs deed, thieves kill yes. the good effect. Yeah, no, that okay. that's... Or if you make the leap to, oh, I think it's really this going on. Mm-hmm. You know what? Flip him one of the little luck tokens. Yeah. Dude, you got it. Now, one thing that I did in the game... Um, in my AD&D game that's maybe a little even more than bonus XP, but it, it fit very well with the situation, was we had a paladin, and he was notorious up through about 10th level. Uh, he was notorious <laughs> for failing his fear check or his fear save. And so they oh, would God. dash into a room with a demon, <laughs> or they would dash into a room with a high-level cleric, or they would dash into a room with a dragon, and he would be one of them that would fail his fear save and he would head for the door so at some point <laughs> in his atonement process uh, for all of these failings of, of moral character he prayed to his deity and the answer was when you stand down your fear and there was a specific quest when you stand down your fear and you take down this temple of set then fear will no longer bother you and and that was just out there for a couple of years and he you know kept failing and kept failing and finally they were in a situation where um they went to the city of brass as a party and in the city of brass there's a floating pyramid of set and they assaulted and took the temple they I mean they took the whole temple and that was the opportunity and so from that point on the paladin has never had to make a fear saving throw because he's hmm. no longer afraid he's no longer affected by fear type effects that's that. really nice yeah i like that yeah and, and it didn't it didn't break the game at all it it actually underscored the paladin's strength of character that we were really trying to project into the campaign no it's a narrative reward for good role play which is which is the best, which is actually what we're striving for. The mechanics are trying to kind of simulate that, right? But that's the real thing. Yeah, and I would say that even though this isn't DCC, it's definitely in the spirit of uh, DCC because the, the whole idea of quest for it. If there's something that your character wants, quest for it. Come up with some, come up with some reason in the yeah. story that you can make this happen. It's not some feat that you gain at 14th level because you have the prerequisite <laughs> feats. This is something that you actually accomplished because in the story you 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 went out and sought this great ability and in the story it was it was given to you. So I I, I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kojo, I hope that it answers part of it there. Um if you're not using fleeting luck, then I definitely recommend Judge Jeff's recommendation as far as determining whether or not it's permanent luck. Uh, if you are using fleeting luck, keep in mind that that fleeting luck can be used on behalf of anybody else at the table. Let it fly, man. I, I would actually give the fleeting luck over additional XP 
just because it helps the survivability, or at least the illusion of, but that's just me. I like the idea, totally abstracting, but I like the idea of the fleeting lock because it's a consumable, whereas XP mm-hmm. is additive, and, and very rarely does it get taken away. It's one of the wonderful things about Lankmart, separates the players from their gold and their uh, <laughs> lock. <laughs> Brilliant. But even, but even as a, it's a great luck is awesome. And where I have run some other old school games, I just even have brought sort of vanilla style DCC luck into whatever I'm doing because it's such a great tool for a GM and even for players. It gives them agency. It gives them more ways to adjust their fate and have more choices and do more resource management and affect the narrative, which is great. All right, um, Kojo, I hope we uh, handled that for you. Uh, if you have any, uh, well, I'm sure you will have some follow-ups, so please email us. <laughs> and thank you very much. He's good Thank like you that. very much. <laughs> yes, he is. Thank you for that email and for the future ones to come. We appreciate them. Thanks in advance. Uh, with that, let's, yes, thank you in advance, and let's head on over to Mighty Deeds and dig into some tacos. Let the combat begin! Why behold our hero? Huh. So you want to play rough, eh? Well, take this! Mighty Deeds. All right, we're here in Mighty Deeds with our special guest. Uh, I'm going to kick it off, and uh, I'm just going to you know, ask John to talk a little bit. He's been in the old school gaming since it was not old school, since it was the real stuff. And I'm going to ask John to kind of kick it off. With uh, you know, telling us a little bit about his gaming history, how he got into gaming originally, and uh, we'll take it from there. Right. So, in my little hometown, there was a classmate or a guy that was a little bit older than than the group that I was in, who went off to. So this was the late '70s. He went off to conventions, and he was a big chit and hex wargamer, and a few of the guys kind of you know played the chit and hex war games but not too many and i certainly wasn't involved in that but one of the things he came back from the convention with was was a white box D. and it wasn't too long before we were all running around looking for dice and scrounging up players handbooks and copies of the monster manual so um as a wee young sophomore in high school in 1980 i got my first taste of rolling up a character at a uh, high school music festival and got a set of books for my 17th birthday about a year later. Ran my first game as a DM about two weeks later. Um, had 12 characters around the table in my parents' living room at 17. Hmm. Wow. And, yeah, first out-of-the-shoot uh, game. And um, have been playing pretty much ever since. There was one break in the late 90s, but pretty much, and, and, and I've stayed with AD&D almost the whole way through. And, and back then, we didn't distinguish between OD&D too much and D&D and AD&D. It was, we, we borrowed and mixed and matched uh, with whatever rule books were on the table. And so we had um, the OD&D Deities and Demigods book on the table and the player's handbook, and maybe at times we had one of the basic sets, and we, we just picked it up and ran with whatever there was going on. So I dabbled with a few other systems along the way, played some Call of Cthulhu in the 90s when I lived in Kansas City, but really never got too far into 2nd edition and, and then later 3rd edition in terms of Dungeons & Dragons. I, I, our group stayed very comfortably in AD&D. 
And so throughout the 80s and 90s, we had campaigns ebbing and flowing, playing AD&D. And then I took a break and in the late 90s and resumed play uh, with a group of friends from high school in the mid-2000s. And, and a lot of those guys had played 3rd edition with their kids. But up to that point, I was still single and then didn't have kids for a while and got married in 1999. But can, I pretty much continued to stick with, with AD&D and, and obviously still am today. So that's kind of, I mean, we played a few odds and ends things. There were other games that were played in our group, and we had a, a pretty big group in our home gaming circle. We had well, probably 12 to 20 that ebbed and flowed. Um, but when they played the other one-off games like Top Secret or Boot Hill or Gamma World, those were the sessions that somehow I just wasn't there for or wasn't present mm. for. Mm. And so... I never really got to play those other games. Um, whenever I was there, we always ended up playing D&D, and it wasn't because I was the only DM. It's just the way that it worked out. Um, hmm. Or we, would, that we wouldn't have enough people to play D&D, and so we'd play some uh, SPI hex and chit game, like Squad Leader. When you were 17 and you had 12 guys at the table that first time, what, uh, what did you run? I ran a Judges Guild product called the Mines of Kuslikon, which was a little mining village north of City State. Mm-hmm. And we had, with 12 players, I had basically three subgroups around the table. And so I would work my way around the table Jeez. and deal with these three or four characters. And they lit the tavern on fire, and they lit the inn on fire. And then I moved to the next group. And, and it was, you know, it was chaotic, but there was some chemistry in the chaos. And, hmm. and and my my parents really didn't understand the game, but they knew we weren't out on the street getting in trouble, and they were okay with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. That was a common theme in the '80s. Like, well, it's better <laughs> than a lot of stuff they could be doing. Right. John, do you ever get to play? I only see you running <laughs> at conventions. That's that's generally when I get to play. So, and and even then, that's. You know, about one session a con is what I am able to play. And that may that may change a little bit going forward. I'm hoping to play a little more. You are devoted. Because mm. you're having too much fun at the booth, right? That's <laughs> it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. No, there's actually a logical explanation for it. Well, this is the time for a logical explanation. <laughs> Here we so are. So I, I played it. I played, yeah. I played it I, back in the, the mid-2000s when I first kind of got back into gaming and, and really plunged into convention gaming. I played in a couple of con games that really were awful. They were mm. just terrible. And yeah. I came to the conclusion that, and this was pre-DCC, so this was during 3rd mm-hmm. edition. Um, I came to the conclusion in my own head that I would rather run a fun game and be the DM than play in a lousy game. And so that's mm, been yes. kind of my fair. SOP ever since. I'm a little bit of a snob in, in, in that I don't really <laughs> sign up for games unless I know who the judge is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, with the exception of the DCC crowd, I'm with you. Yeah. But even the DCC crowd, like almost, I mean, I, even just from the community, I feel like everybody who's running a game, it's, it's rare when I'm looking at the list of DCC games that are running and I see somebody who's running a game and I, and I just have never heard that name before. That's pretty rare. Oh, the, there's a lot at Gen Con, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Yeah, Absolutely. indeed. Who is this person? Who is this person? <laughs> okay. Uh, 
obviously, John, uh, you've got great old school chops uh, all through. How did you get into the the publishing? And of course, uh, you know you're involved in Black Blade uh, Publishing. How how did you get involved in all that stuff? Well, that's a great question, and it all ties together. When I kind of came back into gaming in the mid 2000s, I there was a, a local con here in Kansas. And I was trying to come up with something to run. It was going to be AD&D, of course, but I was trying to find something to run that was published that was current. And so I kind of looked Hmm. at the local game shops. There were some Watsy adventures that didn't excite me, and there were some... Oh, I don't I don't even remember now what all there was. But there were a couple of products that jumped off the shelf, and one of them was a Troll Lords games, Castles and Crusades early adventure and one of them was one of the early DCC for third edition adventures Hmm, and so I don't remember what the Castles and Crusades adventure was but I remember what the DCC was and it was the um, Blackguard's Revenge so there was a sequel to Blackguard's Revenge called Iron Crypt of the Heretics and adventure uh Iron Crypt of the Heretics kind of jumped off the shelf at me, and it's 12.5. And after having read it, I thought, you know, I think I could run that for AD&D. And so I started kind of nosing around the Goodman Games forum, because there was a couple things in there that didn't make sense to me. The, The logic broke down in the adventure. And so I started asking questions, and Harley was very responsive, even back then, when he was still just a budding writer, and only had two or three adventures to his credits. And one thing led to another, and he and Joseph both invited me to come to Gen Con and run the advanced D&D version of the Iron Crypt of the Heretics. And Oh, wow. So my first year back into gaming included a trip to GorillaCon, in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and a trip to Gen Con. And in addition to all of that, we also published and sold out of the Goodman booth an AD&D version of that adventure. So we Joe published uh-huh. a statted uh-huh. AD&D adventure, Iron Crypt of the Heretics, which was immediately sold out, and then he reprinted it uh, for the collectors and the AD&D fans later after the after Gen Con. Okay, that is very cool. <laughs> so that began my foray into really convention gaming with um, publisher support, and we did that same kind of thing the next four years. So we published three or four more AD&D conversions of Goodman Games 3rd Edition Adventures, and I did the conversion work on them and promoted them at other conventions. We were also doing some of those. Well, that was really before GaryCon got started. So that was six, seven, eight, nine, and then GaryCon started in two thousand and nine. Um, hmm. So that was really kind of my involvement with Goodman Games. It was really as a fan. I wasn't helping with the booth really. I didn't help in the booth. Um, I ran my games independently. But there was a connection, and so I was—I saw Harley once or twice a year. I saw Joe every year at Gen Con, and that was kind of the seeds that uh, sprang into the involvement that I see today, or that we see today, uh, with me helping with Goodman on multi-levels. Hmm. 
And Black Blade um, is a, a publishing... very cool beginning. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Black Blade was an outgrowth of that. Um, it was a vision that I had to continue to produce those AD&D conversions of what I felt like were the better DCC for third edition modules. Um, we never really got off of the first one. We did the first one in 2009, and that released at North Texas Con 1. So our first, our first of those for Black Blade was... Uh, DCC number seven, Smuggler's Cove, Secret of Smuggler's Cove, and we released that at North Texas RPG Con number one in 2009. And we kind of intended to go back and do a few more of those, but then we got sidetracked with other projects like Swords and Wizardry and then the Rob Kuntz Adventures, and we've never really gotten back to the, the DCC conversions. But, but Black Blade was an outgrowth of the work that I did with Goodman Games, towards the tail end of the third edition era. And so obviously Black Blade, you were working closely with uh, Goodman Games the, the entire time. Yes. So many of us who know you through various uh, you know, cons and other organizing things are really wondering how you ever got the Taco John nickname. <laughs> and I'm I'm hoping it's going to be a deep, dark secret that you know only the privileged inner circle can never know. In fact, you can't divulge it on spell. Or maybe it's kind of... I don't know, you tell us. In the words of Doug Kovacs, that's not nearly as good a story as it, as it could have been. <laughs> Alright, thanks, John. And with that, let's head over to Mercurial Magic. Ek imka et All my life I've studied the Black Arts. She was a, a kind of magician. Mercurial Magic. All right, we've talked a lot about uh, John's uh, history, his publishing uh, accomplishments, and so on. Now it's time to get into Gen Con 2017. Uh, we are very excited to be there in just, oh, like, what is it, three weeks now or something? I am. It's getting to that part of the year where Gary Fortoin and I, I am each other at work every day and are like, 21 days, 20 days, 19 days. It's just <laughs> it's just the best. So And I believe that w when we plan to drop this, we'll be a week out, right? Yeah, it's going to be close. So, happy happy Gen Con, happy frisson of the Gen Con anticipation. That's really the one of the best parts of the year. Um and of course, John has a, a big role in, you know, getting all the Goodman stuff organized for Gen Con. So, John, you know, tell us a little bit about, first of all, just about the stuff you do for Gen Con, and then, you know, what do you, what's new this year? What are you excited about there? The big new things for Gen Con this year are the return to the, include the return of the multi-team tournament, so the DCC Open. So for the people that yes. have been around DCC for a few years, that's kind of a new concept or a new a new idea. Uh, we've had DCC RPG out for four years now, five years, and a lot of the tournaments have been zero level funnels, or mm. an adapted adventure adapted to team based play. But this year, um, Joe wanted to return the design team back to the roots of the DCC Open, which goes back into the third edition era, where we have an adventure that is crafted specifically for team play in a tournament environment. And so we have 
nine, I believe nine, five player teams competing on a three round tournament. And Mm. we haven't seen that since about 97 or 98 for the, the Goodman Games crew. So and, and the whole the whole DCC Open itself was modeled after the old AD&D Open from Gen Con in the 70s and 80s. So you had multiple tables competing head to head running the same adventure, multiple game masters, and it's a scored tournament. And there's a big long name for the adventure, but it's so internally, everything is so compartmentalized that nobody really knows how it's going to all come together except one or two people at the very end. Cool. That sounds very fun. What, do we know what level it is? Is that public knowledge or is I, it top secret? You know, secret? that might have circulated. I am not aware of what it is. And I'm not on the inside track of the design team nor am I contributing to it, so I don't I don't know what any component of it like that is. Uh, the, mm. the, I do the, know there's a gong. <laughs> there is a gong. Yes. Yes. Um, Wayne Snyder made a gong. <laughs> so that's that's one of the big highlights for this year's Gen Con is the return of the open team based tournament. Another thing I think everybody was anticipating. This is a little bit anticlimactic, but I think everybody was expecting. MCC to release. And of course, with the digital drop, um, that's not going to release at Gen Con. So I'm not sure Mm. um, how many other big things there are for Goodman. There's a few things, like the program guide is always a big release. Um, Oh, yes. Nobody seems to know on the outside, which would include me, what all is going (laughs) to be in the program guide. So I haven't even seen a draft of it yet. And here we are three weeks out. Um, hmm. Do we know if the MCC dice will be available? Unknown. Mm. <laughs> mm. Or if it is known, it's not open knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, somebody, uh, somebody we're knows. Still, we're still waiting to somebody confirm dr- the, the deliveries and things like that, probably. So, yeah, so that's kind of... You could almost say Epsilon City is going to be a big item for Gen Con. It's been out for a few months now. But it's probably the next biggest thing for Gen Con is for Epsilon City. It'll be the first Gen Con for Epsilon City. Hmm. And for the uh, and for the Judges Guild um, book, right? That's right. That's right. The the big Judges Guild Archive Volume One, the Collector's mm-hmm. Archive Volume One. So that'll be that'll probably both of those two products will take up some, you know, some airtime or some bandwidth at the con at the booth. Um, certainly some table space as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, and g- good luck <laughs> yeah. getting the judges' guild book into your carry-on. Yeah, you know, just just buy a couple legs and set the book up by itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we hope you. Please buy the judges' guild book, and we hope you drove something big to indie to carry it back in because it's mm-hmm. it's uh, awesome. That's about it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's basically only transportable via your flatbed. Yes. Excellent. So, John, in addition to merchandise control or at least the booth control you organize the dcc mcc ma events how many events are there this year that yeah so that that gets into some of the other stuff that i that i've been involved with now for a couple of years and that is the event coordination so we've got something like and the numbers have evolved a little bit but something like 148 or 146 uh, events on wow. the schedule for Gen Con. 
And those wow. are and that with, is for four days. Yeah, and that is that, with the exception of Joe's <laughs> seminar. With the exception of the What's New for Goodman Games seminar, those are all game mastered events. Um, mm. <clears throat> so and we've, for a little we've, bit of context, how does that relate to previous years? So yeah, that's a great point, Jeff. So since DCC came out four and a half years ago, Goodman Games' presence at Gen Con in the form of events has pretty much doubled almost every year. So compared to last year, and I can give you some interesting context as well, but but last year we had about 79 or 80 events. When you look at four-hour straight-up events... Um, so it's it's about double mathematically about double of what we had last year. It gets a little fuzzy because um, the last two or three years at Gen Con we've had those zero level funnels, and so those in terms of player hours work out a little bit differently. But but in terms of um, a game master running four hours of an event, we're essentially at twice where we were last year and three to four times where we were for Gen Con 2015. Um, And an interesting kind of side note to that context is I also do the the event coordination for Goodman for the, the, what we call the other tier one game, tier one cons, which is Origins, GaryCon, North Texas, and Gen Con, and Gamehole. At GaryCon this year, we had 74 or 75 events from Goodman Games on the GaryCon schedule. So if you think about that, we had almost as many events at GaryCon this year that we had at GenCon last year. That tells you a little hmm, bit about wow. the presence that Goodman Games has fostered at GaryCon. So if if there are people listening to this that like the fix of DCC, you don't have to go to Good... GenCon's not the only place you can get that fix. You can also get that fix at GaryCon. That would be like... I mean, John, do you have a rough estimate of how many... RPG events that were at GaryCon, that seems like it's like a fifth of them or something. Or more. I don't oh, know. Oh, I don't... I You know, at some point I knew those numbers. I Yeah, I, no, I don't. Um, it's it's in the... This is Spellburn. You, you can just yeah. make it up, man. We'll, we got your back. Yeah, I want to say cool. it's in the... It's, it's over a thousand <laughs> events. I think it's over a thousand events. Okay. It's, 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 with GaryCon, it's a little confusing between events, and, and they, they eclipsed 1,400, I think, this year, 1,500, 1,700, something like that. So I th- but I think the events are in that range as well. I, I could be completely off base. Hmm. Um, well, and I just did the math here, and if the attendance was 1,700 and we had 74 events, that means that there was one DCC game for every 23 attendees. Hmm. That's not bad, and that's, that's not really counting impressive. any. That's not counting any of the after-hours stuff either. Yeah. That's right. Hmm. That's right. Because we have one heck of a community for that stuff. Right, and then if you and if you say, well, uh, you know, a typical session is five to six people. You're talking about almost a quarter to a fifth of the attendees. You know, you have a ratio of basically one out of five-ish, six-ish, somewhere in there. If my project manager math is, you know, holding up. <laughs> That's a big F. Yes, it's a don't, big F. Don't overthink it, guys. That's a big F. <laughs> Always don't check. Your luck. They're... Always check my math. Basically, what Julian is saying is a hundred percent of people who attended Gary Khan were at a DCC game. Probably, <laughs> a, probably at one Round of mine. Up. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. So thank you. Gen Con is awesome. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It is, uh, you know, both a you know, a one and once a year type of craziness that we go through, 
um, and also just a great chance to see some old friends. Um, so obviously, I can't wait to get there and, and see you, John, and see the whole crew, see the booth loaded with goodies, see that new program guide. It's going to be really great. Do you have any, before we move on to other stuff, because there's a few other cool st- things um, I want to ask you about, do you have any great, crazy Gen Con stuff you want to tell us about? Cool anecdotes or, um, uh, I don't know, just other cool, impressive statistics? <laughs> no no stats. No, unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> Come on. Um, yeah, no. I th- oh, don't make a math anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought we were going to talk about cool anecdotal stories. Yes, man. Not stats. Yes. So, so back in the, yeah, so the anecdotal stories, back in the third edition days, and even in probably 2013, Joe and the Chenault brothers were uh, notorious for throwing a party. I think it was on the Thursday night of Gen Con, and it was it bounced from bar to bar. One year it was at the Slippery Nipple, and one year it was at another place. And the Slippery Nipple. It, yeah, there was a Slippery Nipple back then, and in, in, in Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah. Or the Slippery Noodle. Maybe it, it was the Slippery Noodle. <laughs> it's 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 Indianapolis. Let's slippery man. Nipple. I like this. It's Indianapolis. Yeah. It's all good. And uh, and and one year. And I think it was maybe the year that the Trolls had come out with Castle Zoggy. So this puts it about 2008, 2009. Um, I was out with some of the the um, Troll Lords guys and some of the DCC, or the, the Goodman crew. And eventually we realized that it was about closing time. So it was one or two. <clears throat> and I think Harley was with me that, that night. And we kind of looked around, and there really weren't too many gamers left in the bar. It was about 1, 1.30. And there weren't too many of the gamers from Gen Con left in the bar. It was mostly the hardened bar crowd. And and so we kind of headed for the door. And outside, we ran into Davis Chenault, who was Steve Chenault's brother. And Davis was having a hard time getting back. We were afraid he was going to get back to the wrong hotel. So Harley and I kind of <laughs> helped him get back to <laughs> to the embassy suites in one piece. But, um, yeah, so that's anecdotal story. So that was a – they called that – what did they call that? They called that – there was a special name, and I'm not going to remember the name now. <laughs> Beer Thursday, maybe I don't know. It was real sophisticated. <laughs> we, I think, I think we have a a night like that every Gen Con where there ends up being the DCC crowd out that looks around and is like, "Oh, this is not um, the Ram," and we're, yeah, hey, where are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shoot, what direction is our hotel? Yeah, no, it's but it's fun. I mean, Indy's pretty mellow, actually. It's uh, you know, I've never seen any real issue like that. So no, that's uh, that's pretty good. Is that how the Troll Lords got their shout out in the DCC rulebook, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, their their rapport, their relationship with Go Joe goes back a long time. I think they, you know, there was even a rumor at one point that they were going to merge the two companies together. You guys probably haven't been around long enough to know that story. Hmm. Um, but the, yeah, Trollord Games and Goodman Games had some initial merger talks. Hmm. Um, they were going to call it Good Lord Games. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No. Nice. No. <laughs> Just no. Just no. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, let's talk a little almanac. So, 
We are getting ready to hopefully see our 2017 Gong Farmers Almanac, the third one. John, I know you are involved in helping, you know, keep it organized along with uh, Mark Bruner has been a big force in driving it. And um, I know Harley kind of drove some great thinking around the pandemonium stuff this year. Uh, But, you know, it's just this, for those not familiar, of course, it's this huge potpourri of fan content that's all put together, actually put into several volumes of a zine every year and then basically given away for free um, every year. It's a huge thing of content. You know, it's just a grab bag of all kinds of ridiculously fun uh, free stuff. Uh, probably unlike anything in any other gaming you know, system or community or company or whatever you want to call it, which is pretty neat. You know, John, were you involved in the early days of that? I know you were involved in kind of the logistical side of putting that together and stuff. Do what? What can you tell us about how that got started? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, <laughs> so, in the early, the first year, Harley had this idea. So the so 2013, no, 2015, the DCC community was already a, had a vibrant zine community that was kind of cropping up. There were uh, crawl and crawl jammer and crawling under a broken moon had all kind of come out and had been out for a year or so or two maybe and there was kind of this whole subculture within the DCC community that supported these various zines and Harley had this idea that maybe the community or a subset of the community in this case the G plus community could come together and produce something and and the concept was back like the old rock zines back in the 70s and 80s where rock bands had their fans were producing zines and <laughs> and you know they were just giveaway throwaway rags but the, that was the genesis for the uh, for the for the gong farmers almanac and so he kind of circulated the idea and there wasn't much structure that from the outset um it was kind of write it we'll put it together and see if we can produce a zine and so from february or march until april or may articles kind of started showing up there was some spot art that started showing up but there was no real overarching structure and i was getting a little concerned because i I was kind of starting to look at things look at this information look at the content and there was getting to be quite a bit and so i threw some ideas at harley about how we ought to structure, how we might structure it. And the one that stuck was to structure the material in the same way that the OD&D books are structured. And so if you look at the subtitles of the first year, they we use the same subtitles of the OD&D books. So there's a Men in Magic, and there's a Monster and Treasure, and so hmm. on. Hmm. Um, nice. And so it kind of sprang up organically that way. And then... Um, we really didn't have any qualified layout people that first year. I mean, it was, there was writing that was coming in and there was art that was coming in, but neither Harley or I really had layout skill, but I thought I could at least, you know, I had done a little dabbling with it. So I thought, well, I'll see if I can do one. And so I did one and then I did the next one and kind of popped my head up for air. And from, from doing the, you know, tables and the, the layout day to day. Yeah, yeah well and, and for the gong farm and, and at the same time i had a day job um but i, I kind of looked around and it was like well i've got a couple of volumes under my belt nobody's stepped up to kind of do the next one and we've got enough material here for three or four 
so I poked Harley a couple of times, and he didn't really know where to go with the material or who to pull in. And so I just kind of kept working, and I kept him informed of how the progress was. And we weren't sure how we were going to get them printed, but when I got to Gen Con, I had six or five volumes. And so I, I did most of the layout and, and most of the architecture for the structure um, on the fly. And then we had an assembly at the RAM Wednesday night, and then the rest of them got assembled th- over the course of the convention. And then Volume 6 didn't even get done until December. We had some articles that didn't get done until around Thanksgiving. Um, hmm. And so eventually they slackers. got done. Yeah, slackers. <laughs> and they eventually got done, and we produced the six, Volume 6. Hmm. Um, that's cool. You should have you should have like only printed a hundred copies and burned the rest and made that like a rare collectible, you know. You bite your tongue. The black album type. <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. I'll well, was, you if, next. <laughs> if it was more difficult to produce them, that might have been a thing, but we the the um kind of the genesis was not only did we produce these in print, but we also produced the files that people could self print or use hmm. them digitally. Hmm, and so, right. you know, the ne- as soon as we burn one, then somebody can go out and print ten. Right. So, so that was the first year. Yeah. yeah. So we gave a hundred copies away roughly that first year at Gen Con. Hundred sets. Nice. Very cool. And and then last year, I know the stapling party was Wednesday night. <laughs> right. So the next year, yeah. So we and we actually did some of those that that first year as well, at a at a stapling party. And then um, last year we had even two more volumes of content, eight volumes, at and we and we handed out eight sets of <laughs> zines, a hundred copies uh, at Gen Con. And then uh, you know the untold story of that is, in addition to that, then after the con we get requests for people that pay for shipping, and we ship them out post Gen Con um, to people that didn't go to Gen Con. So I right. do roughly thirty or forty sets post Gen Con and then we also wow. produce the the consolidated volume and put those up on Lulu as a as a first for cost alternative so it's a single volume perfect bound gong farmer so we've got those for both of the first two years as well Mr. Kovacs contributes free of charge a really cool cover full of I don't know it looks like there's Kovacsian symbolism and stuff to pick apart on each of those <laughs> indeed yes and he tweaks it every year so it's there's some common elements each year, but there's also wholesale changes to some of it. Yeah, they're linked, but they're different still. I think it also stands to mention that everybody's contributing free of charge. Yeah. Every single page of these are community-sourced. It It's amazing to see the final product and just mind-blowing to think of you guys trying to orchestrate it and organize it and... Whew, hats off to you, man. Yeah, no, it's it's really cool. It's one of the it's one of the most unique things about DCC and it's just that the fans including me and including some, you know, hundreds of people are are just that enthused and just wanting to pour their little brains out there and do some cool stuff whether on the art, the the uh writing, the um or even helping out you lay out the editing because people do a lot of volunteer editing and proofreading and stuff as well. It's it's just really cool, and they do do a little fundraiser and raise a little money for printing costs as well. 
uh, it should be mentioned. So it's just a whole community support um, thing, which is which is really great. And thank you, John, for your efforts and you know organizing and shepherding that. And thanks to Mark as well, uh, Mark Bruner and uh, Harley as well, and and the all the other folks who push it along, including Jim Sketch, who I think is sort of on the hook to host some of the stapling parties, at least in the past. So. <laughs> I want to also talk, uh, maybe last, about um, the DCC RPG Index, John. I don't know that this is super visible for everybody, but um, you have printed out some sort of zine-type booklets. I think there's one for the DCC RPG Adventures, and then there's another one for the DCC Zines, and there's another one for Metamorphosis Alpha. So can you can you just give us uh, the overview about what these guys are, how you you know how you came to be doing them, and so on? Sure. So back to my AD and D roots, I'm a, I, I rely on a, an index of Dragon Magazine called the Dragon Dex, and that's an online hmm. index of the first 150 or 200. No, two two hundred and fifty issues of Dragon Magazine, and it's a topical index. It has the name of the article, a subject, name of the article, author's name, and then the volume and page number. And it's it's um, you can search it electronically. Well, in the early days of the DCC RPG community, as the zine uh, side of this or the zine subculture was kind of gaining some traction one of the things that I started to wonder about was these are all neat zines there's you know westerns there's starfaring spacefaring there's post-apocalyptic but how does somebody that's not intimately involved with them access the information there and so I kind of leaned on my use of the Dragon Decks as the solution. So I went through, the first year, I went through all of the zines that have been published to date for DCCRPG and pulled out the gameable content and built an index. <clears throat> it's kind of evolved from there. So um, it happened to also can be about the same time that we were doing the Gong Farmer. And so I incorporated the Gong Farmer content into the index. And now, two years later the zine index is a full volume and into itself of the gong farmer's almanac there's been another well last year there was 27 or 30 more zines that have come out and this year there's another 20 or 30 zines that have come out since last gen con wow and those have all been extracted you know the the new monsters the new magic items the new spells have all been extracted out for, for an index purposes and built into the updated zine index. And so if you want to wow. look and see where the crab monster is, you can pull out the zine index and see if there ever has been a crab monster in any of the <laughs> 78 or 79, however many there are zines that have been published for DCC and you have volume and page numbers. So the zine index is part of the gong farmers almanac. It is. Yeah, it's been incorporated in. Okay, but the the one for the modules is not. That's and that's, r- that's strictly right. the strictly the Goodman Games modules or right. does that include third party? No, nope, just just official adventures. So, after the Jeez. since the since the Zine Index had been out a couple of years, the next 
line in my thought process was, well, how does somebody that's new to the game connect the dots between the adventures? And so I went back to the well for the Dragon decks again, and I kind of used the same methodology for the DCC Adventures. So I went through DCC Adventures, published by Goodman, and pulled out the gameable content and built an index from those. So from DCC 66.5, pulled in all of the adventures, all of the sub-adventures, the adventures that are in the Gen Con Program Guide, um, artist sketchbooks, the free RPG Day products, all of those, uh, the DCC content has been indexed. Wow, right, uh, John, that sounds that sounds great, and a real labor of love. Uh, it, you must be a passionate fan of the game and uh, of gaming in general to put the time in to do that. I'm sure it's a great tool for uh, people looking to do their own stuff. It's a great tool for for those getting into the game to see what's out there and what they can use. Those things are terrific tools for the community. I'm not sure if the community is aware of just how much Taco puts in behind the scenes, the zine indexes, you know, behind the booth and everything, but you know, we certainly do appreciate all of it. Absolutely, John. I'm super grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy right now in the oh, yeah. in the days and weeks leading up to Gen Con, but we really appreciate that you've taken the time to chat with us. Uh, we're hugely grateful to have you on. It's uh, long overdue, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> glad, glad you could make it. Absolutely. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks, John, for being with us, and we will see you hopefully at Gen Con very shortly. Uh, looking forward to that. In the meantime, send us some emails at theband at spellburn.com. Write us some reviews on iTunes. And with that, uh, game on and get your game on at Gen Con 2017. Can't wait to see everybody at Gen Con. Three weeks, count down the days. Yeah, come by and yeah. say hi to us at the booth. At Gen Con or bust, man. We'll <laughs> see you guys there. You've been listening to Spellburn, copyright 2017. Theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.fancamp.com.